Show number 27 of I Read Comics. God, I'm starting to ramble as badly as he did. Feeling a little lightheaded, too. Maybe I need food. Good afternoon, citizen. Welcome to Planet Krypton. How may I serve you? Good Lord, what is this place? It used to be a deli. Now it's a Planet Krypton. Superfood served by superheroes. We got all the oldies here. The Flash, Martian Manhunter, and check out the decor. That's a real Batarang up there. Belonged to the Batman himself. At least, that's what the manager tells us. Planet Krypton? Come on, don't you get it? Pop culture references, very retro, very in. No offense, but you look like you've been around long enough to remember the old timers. Batman, Fishman, Aquaman. Right, that's it. Me? I've never even seen those guys. I hear they're all retired now anyway, which is cool by me. I wouldn't want the real deal coming around and showing me up in this outfit. (laughs) Although, it's not a bad job on these tights, huh? They tell me I make a pretty good green... uh, What do you call it? Arrow? Lantern. Excuse me? Green Lantern. You're dressed like Green Lantern. Whatever. Who cares? They're all out to pasture now anyway. A friend of mine cared. Whatever you say. So, can I find you a table? I can seat you anywhere but Supergirl's section. That's always packed. Hey! Well, welcome back to another fabulous episode of I Read Comics, and it should be called We Read Comics, because this week I have once again the wonderful Catherine from Philly, who's here to help me talk about one of our our favorite books and favorite artists. We're going to talk about Kingdom Come. Thanks, Catherine, for coming on the show. A pleasure, as always. Yeah. So we decided, since the last thing that we did like this was to talk about um, a boy and his dog in its different incarnations. We we discovered recently that Kingdom Come by uh, Mark Wade and Alex Ross also comes in different incarnations. It comes in the graphic novel. It comes in a, a novel novel, <laughs> I guess, a word novel. Mm. And, and then there's an audio version, and the audio version is really like a radio play and not just somebody reading the book. So first, I have to personally say thank you to um, Shane Kelly from Comic Geek Speak for providing us with the audio version. Apparently, it's pretty hard to find. Um, I know some people have have actually found it in their libraries, but as far as I know, it's out of print. Like, you can't actually buy it anymore. It's one of those BitTorrent specials. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say that. No, no. Uh, So so it's out there if you really want to hear it. And and, um, the clip that we played at the top of the show there was one of the the clips that I thought was worth capturing. And we'll play a few more throughout the show. Um, And it's 
kind of to give people who haven't heard it a flavor for what this thing sounds like. <laughs> um, not to jump into it too quickly, but it, to me, it sounded like for the audio version, they hired a couple of real actors who do this kind of stuff all the time. And then the other people who did the voices were either community theater rejects or like friends of the <laughs> producer, <laughs> including that guy <laughs> who's playing yeah. the waiter. Now, like uh, we were actually just talking right before the show that, yes, he's drawn a little bit, you know, extravagant in the book. Festive? But, uh, yeah, someone took it to, like, level 11. They went up to 11 with that particular portrayal. <laughs> I know it's pretty common with audio dramas. Have you ever actually heard any other radio dramas before other than this one? Um, I've, I've heard classic radio dramas. I don't think I've heard any recent ones. Like, my first reaction when I listened to this audio version was, well, it's not War of the Worlds, you know, like, <laughs> as my reference point for what good audio drama should be. The only one I've ever heard before is the Star Wars radio drama and all three different movies. And in some of them, they had the original actors come back. And, of course, Mark Hamill, because they had nothing better to do, um, <laughs> sorry, Mark, um, was in it and did a really great job. As we all found out in the future, he does a really great job of doing audio stuff. Uh-huh. But um, there was some of it that was – there are some actors that are just a lot better at it than others. There's a lot of high camp that comes into it. Mm-hmm. People tend to go way, way broad because they know nobody can actually see you. But um, what did you think about Norman McKay? I thought he I, – I liked him pretty much. Well, he has the the most uh, lines because he's the narrator. So yeah. he has to talk most of the time. And I guess in a, in a character like that, you can't really go over the top because it would be just impossible to sustain that for three hours. Um, he, he's a little too, uh, I don't know, bright or, or kind of matter of fact about some of the things that are happening. And he's a little Colonel Potter sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, overall, I really like it. And I heard that actually Alex Ross had his father record some lines and set it into the people so uh-huh. that when they read it, they had some sort of reference, at least for what he was going for, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean that that's what they did or anything. But, um, yeah, I think that in general, he sounded like somebody's old dad or, or uncle or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Um, I found a page <clears throat> on the internet because uh, I found a lot of things when I was kind of searching around for information about Kingdom Come. And um, this site has an actual listing of the actors and then the guest voices that were on here. So of the actors, I, I didn't recognize anyone. And I'm assuming these are just people who do audio books for a living um, or, or, you know, read books for the deaf or something like that. And, <laughs> I mean, you know, th- these must be the main characters who are in there and Honestly, I couldn't recognize any names here. I looked some of them up in IMDb, couldn't find anything. But then some of the guest voices are are comic book people. So Denny O'Neill has a guest voice. Mark Wade has a guest voice. Um, Pete Tomasi has a guest voice. Um, Some other folk. It's all DC folks, basically. Uh, And they got to do little, little tiny parts for a contribution to this. And for some of them, they're credited. Like it says, Mark Wade is the one who says, look, up in the sky. (laughs) Okay. Highly dramatic, yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, let's let's start with the, the graphic novel first, since that was the first thing that came out. The version that I have is um, the eighth printing of the regular one that was published in 1997. And that's when the trade came out. Right. right. So, so that's this one. And I understand that there was a graffiti version of it that came out sometime later that had a lot of extra stuff. And I just saw that DC's putting out an absolute edition of this as well. 
and that'll be in 11 by 17 format, which makes me really wish that I hadn't bought this yet. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's like $75. Right. You know, it comes out. in, the, in the, the like embossed case and it's slip covered and, you know, everything really, really nice. And that's what eBay is for. Yeah, yeah. Now, what was this Kingdom Come Revelations that I kept seeing? Was that just part of the section that came along with one of the books? I think so. I think um, the graffiti edition had this extra annotations. But for people who don't want to shell out the money for it, online, there actually is at least one site which is uh, run by the same guy who did the annotations for um, the Alan Moore stuff for Watchmen and for Top Ten, uh, Jess Nevins, who I, I know through Mystery Science Theater fandom, strangely enough, um, <laughs> has a whole section of annotations that he and other folks put together and refers a lot to this Revelations thing. So if you really want to read every every single thing that's in Kingdom Come, I'll put up the link and you can read through these pages. I mean, it is literally pages and pages and pages of stuff. Yeah, I copied it into a Word document and made the margins like 0.5 and the font like for Diana 9, and it was 50 pages. Oh there God. is nothing missing here, so yeah, <laughs> definitely take a look at that. People can find it, because there is an awful lot of stuff, not the least of which are the characters. So um, I guess we should recap very briefly. For people who haven't read this, and there must be a few out there who are listening because they just love us more than they can possibly imagine. Um, <laughs> and if you haven't read it, you really just should stop listening and go get like, it. put it on pause, go get it, read it, because it's going to be chock with spoilers. Yeah, yeah, up, I, so. we're not going to hold anything back because we really need to, to kind of get into it. So um, this is set, I was just reading in the front of the graphic novel, it says it, it's um, part of DC's Elseworlds series, and it says... In Elseworlds, heroes are taken from their usual settings and put into strange times and places, some that have existed or might have existed, and others that can't, couldn't, or shouldn't exist. So that gives you an idea that this is not part of regular time continuity, regular universe continuity. It's a story that's set apart from everything else. It just uses the same characters and the same premise. I actually love that DC does this, because they just don't even worry about explaining how through whatever time... Yeah continuum warp have Marvel's so tied up with you know Earth 616 mm -hmm. and how does it wind up being the future and all that other stuff this kind of removes it from that so it's like you know this could happen and maybe it won't happen yeah exactly but that's not even the point so you can enjoy the story I, I totally I love that kind of stuff in, in the last show that I did I was talking about how much I loved um, Secret Identity which is sort of a similar thing it's, it's a story about the characters that doesn't take place within the normal confines of it and for the artists and, and the writers it must be so freeing just to say okay mm. I'm just going to go and do it Whatever I want to, and I'm going to make up my own rules, and I'm going to put together characters who have never been together and invent all kinds of new stuff, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to go beyond, you know, the five issues or whatever this thing is going to be. It's, it's a story unto itself. Well, I just, that, was, that just dried my whole mouth out there, having that little speech. Okay. Little tirade. Yeah, really. Um, so, in Kingdom Come, it's... Um, in the future, I, I guess it's not that far in the future, but it's sometime like kind of in the middle of the 21st century. Is that about right? Yeah. Does, does it actually well, say, say that I miss it? Not, I don't think so. No, but they do say that Superman has been gone X number of years, but they don't really try and pin it down. And you can see in some of like in the rendition of Gotham, you see cars from the 1920s to things that, you know, aren't around yet. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those probable futures. Yeah. And um, the premise is that, <clears throat> so Superman's been gone. And most of the rest of the superheroes, the superheroes that we um, are in retirement or have gone somewhere else. And the next generation of superheroes has essentially um, taken over 
that space and they are so bored that they're just fighting with each other a lot of the time and causing a lot of havoc and um, just destroying a lot of what the older superheroes had created in terms of goodwill and helping humanity. And it, it reaches a crisis point where through um, one of these superhero fights, Kansas is destroyed. Um, essentially blown up with a nuclear explosion, like the whole state psh, just vaporized. And then we find out what happens when Superman comes back and tries to rally all of the older generation of superheroes to do something with the newer generation of superheroes. And that's the rest of the story is how that all plays out. Does that sound about right? Yeah. I mean, there's small other little plots like, you know, Batman. Well, actually, there's the the group, what humanity has decided to do about it. And there's, you know, the United Nations kind of path, what they're going to do about it. And then there's the Lex Luthor, Mankind Liberation Front. So you have all these different opposing forces. And then Batman has his sort of group of, okay, we're not going to follow the big blue Boy Scout with the spit crawl. We have our own, you know, we're going to take care of business ourselves. And it's more like the human kind of superheroes. So there's all these different things coming to a boil. And it's actually pretty scripted pretty well with the the huge climax at the end. Yeah. Uh, it, I thought that um, Mark Wade did a great job of running a lot of things on those parallel paths, like you were saying. There are the big plot, and then there are small plots, and you can see how all the threads are going to come together at this one climactic point. And um, the the big fight is at in Kansas again, so it's kind of going back to where the whole thing started, where um, the good guys, I'll say, for lack of a better word, mm. have built this giant prison where they're putting all the bad guys. And of course, you never make that mistake of putting all the bad guys in the same prison together because you know something's going to happen, and of course it does. So that's where the, the big battle takes place at the end. And the story is all told, of course, through the viewpoint of the specter and Norman McKay, mm -hmm. who is the human person who's supposed to give judgment on who is at fault for this great sin. I mean, this is supposed to be Armageddon with the big A, not Armageddon with the little A, like at the end of every season of Buffy, which <laughs> I love, but seriously, it's like 12 Armageddons. So this specter comes as God's representative of vengeance and mm -hmm. wants to, because he's been so far removed from humanity, which I found a lot about specter that I had not known before, mm -hmm, before too. reading this, um, that he needs to anchor himself to a human of good virtue and judgment. And that's this Norman McKay, this right. minister. And he's pretty much just an ordinary guy. There's nothing special about him. He's a minister. His wife has just died fairly recently. He has this little tiny church that not many people go to. He's not a particularly good guy. Um, he's not uh, a saint. He hasn't done anything extraordinary in his life. So he is every man in, in um, most terms. And because he's a minister, he has just more of a connection maybe with the spiritual realm or, or with God or however you want to think of it. But I like the also, fact that he's not really special. That was good. He's not. And if, and maybe marginally because he was a friend of Wesley Dodds, who was the Silver Age, Silver Age or Golden Age sand, uh, Sandman. Age, yeah, yeah. And um, he had been possessing of these visions the sandman um of course he's long since retired and at his passing i think it's implied that those visions i mean it's stated that the visions then pass to norman so norman now sees visions of the apocalypse and fears he's going mad right so part of it in the beginning is a mystery to find out what the visions might actually mean and are they uh armageddon in in the way that people interpret them in book of revelations like that you know god and the devil are going to have this big fight and the earth's really going to open up and these monsters are going to come out or is it maybe something else that is cast in that same light and we really don't find that out until we get pretty close to the end of the book mm. 
um, there are some hints about what's going to happen, but I thought that, that Wade and, and Alex Ross did a great job of matching um, what actually happens in the book with, with the superheroes fighting with the imagery that's actually in Book of Revelations with the colors of the costumes and lightning coming out of the sky and all that. It's very literal in that way, which I thought was real cool. There are tons and tons of symbols and just parallels between, I mean, the notes that were in that um, that website. I, I just couldn't even keep track of them and bits of the quotes and the the actual table of the the new Oath, the new superhero mm-hmm. refuge up in the sky that that's supposed to represent the certain things and it got very very detailed and <laughs> to pick up all the levels of it you really do need to read yeah the website really. because it's astonishing like have it side by side with your book i was kind mm-hmm. of wondering you know um when they if when mark wade was writing it whether he actually looked at book of revelations and and took things like the the symbol of the eagle right there's an eagle in the sky and then right. said okay we need to make wonder woman's fighting costume look like an eagle or was that coincidence or, or you know like did he have it in mind that wonder woman was going to have this armor and then go oh look there's an eagle in book of revelations yes let's use that i'd seen that alex ross wanted to make the breastplate a little bit more symbolic of the eagle so that she would mm. clearly represent that and apparently this story had been cooking around in his brain for like 10 years wow i mean back from when he was a teenager and younger than that he had this idea and if you have the book mythology which i highly recommend it's called Mythology, the DC Comics Art of Alex Ross, and it's by Chip Kidd and Jeff Spear. And there's a whole section where he explains the history of Kingdom Come. You get to see pages from his notebook in which he is talking about Superman as Samson, Superman as Jesus, the creation of the story, and one called Son of Krypton, and a lot of different details about it and how this has evolved over the years. And so it must have been a partnership between him and Mark Wade put the story together. I mean, Alex Ross's version was a little bit, was actually quite a bit different. You know, when you're 12, you write a little bit differently <laughs> than when you're 30, but um, it must have been some sort of level of partnership. And Alex Ross being the son of a minister, mm-hmm. I mean, he must just know this stuff right off the top of his head. Yeah, it, it's really astonishing how well the writing and the art go together in this. It, it's in, in some comics, you can really see a division between the words and the pictures. Like, oh, one guy was writing the words and another guy was doing the pictures. And they, they seem very different. But here, I think they mesh really perfectly, um, not just the, the words that people are speaking, but also the words that appear in, in the captions and then the words that appear in, say, newspaper articles and things like that. It all seems to flow together just incredibly well. Really, really well done. <laughs> You know, imagine how strange it would be or how different the story would come off if the art was by, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz or by Mr. Liefeld or, you know, it's an epic story. It needs to have this almost, mm-hmm. pain, it has to have the painterly quality. Now, a lot of people have issues with Alex Ross, his work, because it, a lot of his things tend to look more like tableau. And I've seen in some of his other work where you look, it, it seems to slow things down. Mm-hmm. I recently saw the Batman War on Crime oversized. And the way that Paul Dini tells that story, it's very, I'm telling a story as opposed to action, 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 where this is a lot of action packed into it. And I think that he really did triumph in trying to make things look, the battle scenes look like stuff is happening. They totally do. I mean, there are some tableaus in here, especially when he'll yeah. show uh, like a flock of superheroes flying up into the sky. And they're yes. so iconic. I mean, 
it's funny, as I was looking at him, he always draws people flying the same way, right? Like, they have their arms <laughs> out, and their legs are always tightly pressed together, and their feet are pointed. And you would think, God, if you were really flying, could you ever actually be in that pose? Like, wouldn't it be too hard to have your body sort of straight like an arrow and have your feet pressed together so tightly, like like you were diving off a diving board? It would it's seem the old George Reeves Superman. Yeah, it, it seems quite unnatural, but totally appropriate to what he's trying to do here when he shows six superheroes rising up into the sky and they're all in exactly the same pose it's very powerful it's just it's a great image no matter how unrealistic it might be it's funny you mention unrealistic because one of the other things i hear a lot is that oh well it's you know photorealism and it's like as if somehow that's less that's less impressive Mm -hmm. i did some research on photorealism too as an artistic movement and it it's funny because it actually is supposed to be the exact representation of a thing without passion, like even to the point of taking a slide and projecting it onto the canvas and hmm. reproducing it. It's not supposed to be anything that doesn't exist. For example, like people flying might be one thing that uh-huh. doesn't exist. <laughs> but uh, it is pho- photorealistic, definitely. And he does use photos as references. And he actually does his own photo shoots with lighting, people in costume. So in that way, definitely. And one of the things that he did love about some of the artists that he studied, not only Norman Rockwell, but Andrew Loomis, who I had first discovered in a book called Visual Storytelling by Tony Caputo. And very hard to find Andrew Loomis's stuff online. But if you manage to get any PDFs of the pages, there's some really good stuff in there for any artists out there. But you can tell the influence of, you know, just wanting to make your heroes real. Mm-hmm. I think that's just so amazing. And I have huge art envy because of it. Yeah. Definitely fitting for this story where the heroes are suddenly a little bit less than icons. The older ones are iconic, but the new ones are just, you know, a group of angry kids that have nothing better to do. Exactly. And they look so fantastic. You know, he's done such a good job with all these superheroes that he's created, especially for this book, of giving them their own personalities, their own colors, their own hairstyles and costumes and everything that goes along with them. There are hardly any two that look the same. When you look at a picture and he's drawn like 20 of them, they're all different and individual. It's so cool. I'm I'm looking right now as we're talking, I'm just glancing through the book. And I know that um, he was... Alex Ross was trying to harken back with Superman anyway to the Max Fleischer cartoons mm-hmm. and make him um, much kind of blockier. And you can see that, like, you know, his neck is really thick and his shoulders are really broad. And he's he's not um, – he doesn't look like a weightlifter, but he just looks a lot bigger than he's normally drawn. And um, there's some images here from when uh, the bad guys are walking around in the gulag and there's um, – these giant Superman holograms that are projected that are supposed to be teaching them right from wrong. It's like, it's, it's really bad. It's really very communistic. Um, Yeah. And, and, but I'm just noticing that the Superman hologram that's presented looks exactly like a Fleischer cartoon. I mean, it has no detail. It's kind of flat and it looks just like, you know, those square angles that you're used to seeing in in those old Superman cartoons. Pretty funny. (laughs) So um, let's see. So, so plot wise, the good guys take the bad guys and they put them in prison. Of course, the bad guys break out and there's this huge battle that happens in the middle of Kansas. At the same time that all this is happening, we find out that uh, Captain Marvel has been brainwashed by Lex Luthor and uh, is the, as Batman says, the wild card in this whole thing. And uh, he eventually ends up going to Kansas and having this giant fight with Superman. And there comes a point where it's up to Captain Marvel whether to 
to save what's left of the superhumans and, and in effect, whether or not he's going to save all of humanity by doing something really noble. And right up until the point that he does what he does, you're not sure what's going to happen. Cause I didn't see that coming when I was reading this. I was like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? Um, there are these three nuclear bombs that are headed towards Kansas to destroy all of the, the superhumans. And I thought, well, how are they going to get out of this one? Right, and still keep some sort of, if everyone dies, then there can't be any victory. That mm-hmm. I was very curious about. The other thing that I hadn't realized, and maybe it's just my DC, DC ignorance, which is getting smaller and smaller by the day, <laughs> um, was that his Captain Marvel's lightning was a magical force, and that it does hint it where Superman cuts his finger on the sword of Hephaestus, mm-hmm. that is Wonder Woman's sword, which is magical. And she mentions that he always had a little bit of weakness towards magic, and that's why the lightning takes him down. That whenever, that when Captain Marvel says Shazam and then steps aside, the lightning comes down and hits Superman, it's a magical lightning that's able mm-hmm. to really hurt him. So it's a bit of an education on my part. Yeah, that, that was interesting. In the book... Um not so much in the graphic novel, but in the actual novel novel, um, there's a bit of explanation about why there are suddenly so many um, metahumans. And that's all explained fairly scientifically, like it's genetic mutation and, and these things happen. And Superman really is the only true alien, aside from the folks who come from um, Apocalypse, the New Gods people. Hmm. But all of the other superheroes actually arose through this genetic mutation that happened on Earth. And magic, in terms of... Uh, the Amazons and in terms of Shazam is this totally other thing. It, it's not really connected with things that happen through science. It's, it's another realm. And I, I mean, I, it was interesting, but it was still confusing to me that they were, they're mixing up all these things together. Like there's God and then there's gods. There's Zeus, right? Who appears, right. but he's there at the same time and talking to the specter who's presumably an angel of like the big God, the Jehovah God, and then there's, you know, there's the magic that's associated with Shazam, which is a different sort of thing that doesn't seem to be connected to the Jehovah God thing. So, yeah, the involvement of God with a capital G in this as present and absent at the same time. Yeah, was a li- it was a little disoriented. It's like, OK, well, where? Did- that's why I was so curious about the role of the specter and who was this guy? And like, I'd never heard of this guy before I read this book. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I went to Wikipedia, God bless Wikipedia, <laughs> and read about how he was the avenging spirit of a cop who'd been killed and at various points during the character's lifespan from the 40s, I think, even till now, he's had lots of powers, no powers, anywhere in between. And Alex Ross and Mark Wade apparently wanted to rec- uh, represent him as someone who has waning powers, just as the actual god with a big G has waning powers and influence in this particular time. But uh, yeah, And they also had him try and be not superhero and be really sort of angelic, where he's naked, he has a, right. just a robe on, you can't see his face. He looks like one of those hooded seraphim, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, and the religious overtones, or rather the subtext in the book, which is brought very much to the surface in the actual novel, yes, and very, very heavy. Um, well, what did you think of the novel when you read it? Um, there were some things I really liked about it, and then there were other things that I, I didn't like quite so much. Um, I, I thought that the exposition that you get in the book that just gives you backstory on some of the characters was really interesting. Like, there's a whole chapter devoted to um, the Flash in Keystone City and what the Flash does now. And I thought that, I love that chapter. was beautifully written. I mean, that was really, really well done. Just talking about how, because the Flash is now moving so fast, he can never stand still. 
and in Keystone City, it's a utopia because he's everywhere at once, literally, kind of like God, right? I mean, he is, he's the God yeah. of Keystone City. And um, it goes through like a minute of time. And for the Flash, of course, he can do everything in a minute because time is, is completely elastic to him. And he's saving people from a burning building and he's doing it so fast that um, people, things happen and it seems like magic to them because he's doing everything so quickly. That was just great. Like, what a wonderful piece of writing. Um, the, the sections that are really heavy on the God stuff, like Norman McKay explaining his his ministry and talking about his ideas about God and all that, it's like a little long. I kept kind of waiting for the first third of the book for the plot to get going and to, to get through some of this background stuff. A little slow. At the same time, I felt like, well, you know what? There is this huge, I mean, it is all this religious subtext, which is kind of important, I guess. But yeah, I was waiting for the flights and tights too when mm-hmm. I was reading it. But it seemed like, it seemed a little uneven to me. I think some of the challenge was, and I'm sure for the author, the Elliot S. McGinn, Magin, mm-hmm. um, was that he was writing from first-person point of view mm-hmm. of Norman McKay. And it's always tricky to do that and have your other characters be really interesting and compelling. Now, where I felt the book got most effective was, and he implied that during the story, as he's watching these things, as Norman is watching these things, he's suddenly able to tap into the consciousness mm-hmm. of the people around yep, him. Yep. So it slipped from first-person point of view to omniscient point of view, where he was able to actually say, well, Superman thought that was, or something. Mm-hmm. And that's where it got even more interesting to me, because he was freed of the, you know, Norman, he said, she said, he then said, she then said, back and forth, and you were able to see what the characters were thinking and feeling. Yeah, definitely. That that was really great, and, and I felt like he did a very good job of portraying it, and I think there's only one instance, I don't remember where it was, where that kind of got away from the writer. Like, mm. there was one scene where Norman McKay couldn't possibly have, have known or said the thing that happened there, and I was like, okay. But that's, I mean, for a book that's, you know, 300, 400 pages long, <laughs> that's pretty good. I'm it's okay if it's uneven. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like I didn't mind the unevenness. There was moments of real epic DC tone. Yeah. The one about Batman I thought was great, too, where they talk about him and his manner, and, of course, his identity has been exposed and his manner has been destroyed, but he's actually in control of Gotham City, mm-hmm. and he's able to keep order in the city, and he's happy. And it describes him sitting there watching Citizen Kane and just right. laughing his head off right. because he considered it to be a comedy because he didn't know how someone could be that rich and be that miserable. Um, but that is, and it, just the way it described him and how he'd come to terms with his life and finally accepted his parents' deaths and all that stuff, thought right on the mark. Yep. I, I thought that um, the the writing in, in those passages, and I thought that the descriptions of the big battle that happened at the end as well were really well done, um, really effective and exciting without going over the top. Um, really an impressive thing to translate what was so visual in the graphic novel to something that actually worked really, really, really well on the page. Um, and still managed to give homage to some yeah, of the characters. Yeah. I, had, I marked a little passage about Batman coming down out of the sky oh, cool. when he first appears as the cavalry showing up. Um, out of the sky tumbled the Batman on wings and jets. There was no longer any demarcation between Bruce Wayne, the boy who'd seen his parents crumble, and the Batman, the terror born of that tragedy. No more than the difference between the man of flesh and the hardware that gave him his locomotion and his physical power. The titanium strapping that held together his shoulders and limbs now clamped under the streamlined flying battle suit. He was a jet propelled and steering from the corners of his mortal joints. He was a tank. He was the dark knight dropping out of the clouds. He was a man and bat and the ghost of the dread Gotham Knight. 
I just thought that was pretty That's, amazing. That is really great. They make a lot of that throughout the book that Batman's now got this um, exoskeleton that he's constructed because <laughs> his physical body just isn't able to cope anymore. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I love all those descriptions of him as being this blend of, of man and machine and, you know, constant references to him sort of clanking around with this, this skeleton attached to himself. It's very cool. Um, I wanted to – there's one passage near the beginning that I thought was um, – not as good as I would have wanted it to be. And uh, this is talking about how these metahuman kids um, are just ruining everyday life for people. And it's a scene where uh, it's a, a, a trolley or a tram, I think. And uh, these two groups are about to have a fight in there. And uh, so this section starts by describing this. And then um, the doors open and all the regular passengers like leave immediately because they don't want to be in the middle of the fight. The fight, And then it says, Only a small blonde woman boarded. She carried the exaggerated figure of an old-time movie star, but crow's feet betrayed the fact that she'd traversed a crucial hill lately and might not be aware of it yet. No matter, into the conveyance she bounced, and heedless of the nonsense collecting at the extremes of the car, she found a seat in an empty center and opened up a trashy magazine. <laughs> Now, now, that's supposed to be Power, power Woman, woman. Right? Okay, like, I'm not Power Woman's <laughs> biggest fan, but come on. Do we have to do this to her? Do we have I'm to say... I'm not familiar with it all, but is that more or less how... I mean, I know she's Power Girl, and she's kind of like... Is she like the bimbo of the DC? Well, universe? I mean, she's she's not really a bimbo. I mean, she's drawn that way. Yeah. Like, I'm 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 not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Um, she has these great big tits, and and she does have a great figure, and she wears that ridiculous costume that has the little peekaboo window in the front, so you can see her cleavage. But you know, she's not. She's not stupid. She's been very strong at times. And I think DC has never quite known what to do with her. Um, and she has powers that are very much akin to Superman's. I mean, she can fly and she's really strong. And They've done like about a zillion different backstories. So I'm not that stuff. But I'm just talking about the fact that, you know, they have to give her, have her reading a trashy magazine. It's like, come on. And then later, I just was a little actually offended by the use of this word. Um, she there's a fight and she she beats everybody up she just kicks the crap out of them all great that's terrific um finally the express train came to a real stop where there were travelers who actually wanted to get on and go somewhere by then the troublemakers were tired of their troublemaking and all got off to trudge home at the following stop the slatternly blonde got out of her seat and left the useless magazine in a trash bucket fluffing out her lovely hair and shaking her body constricted by the illusion of the unfashionable like a dog hopping out of a pool she bounced up the subway stairs into the san francisco sun Slatternly blonde? What? I don't even know. I don't even know what that means. I think it means like a <laughs> slut. I mean, just because she's got big tits? Come on. Oh, awesome. I actually love that he did draw them still so. <laughs> I mean, I have a thing with the whole boobs in the comics and, you know. But I think that like she almost needed I like that she was so vampy and so old at the same time. Yeah, but and she know? was big. I mean, like big and muscular and and really yes. tough looking like, oh my god, yeah. you wouldn't want to mess with her. I was very <laughs> happy with Alex Ross's art that all of the women looked pretty big and Wonder Woman looked great. I mean, she's yeah. one of the three central characters and she looks really tough and really strong and not bimboish at all and he gave her like you were saying a slightly different costume and she just comes across as all business. It's really wonderful. 
Yeah, there's some muscles on her. Yeah. Just looking at her descending here out of the air with Superman. Yeah. And she has sort of the little loincloth. At first I thought it was just some sort of very strange Red Sonia, like, flap of clothing <laughs> with nothing underneath. Like, she had, like, no, she just was going to go, woo, and show everybody, and they'd be just drop, they'd drop, drop dead, just seeing. <laughs> but, no, I think she actually has, like, some sort of little Wonder Woman underoos on underneath there. And she's got a little, then the little flap is on top of it, like a loincloth, just right. decorative, so. It, it looks good. Very classical, you know? <laughs> kind of cool looking. Um, uh, there's one I have to mention one other thing about the book that that just bothered me from like a writerly <clears throat> point of view. Um, there's a word in this book that is used more than once, and it's one of those words where if you saw it one time in a book, you'd go, "Ooh, this guy knows a big word." And if you see it twice, you go, "That's pretentious." Um, <laughs> so the word, and this is a word I actually had to look up because I wasn't quite sure of the meaning. And the word is arrogate. Really? And it means to take or claim for oneself. It's actually just a synonym for appropriate. Like if you're appropriating power or you're appropriating someone's rights or like that. And he uses it twice in the book, arrogate. I think that's a mistake. <laughs> if I had been the editor, I would have struck one of those pieces. That's like Anne Rice in Preternatural. Exactly. She uses every other, par- yeah. <laughs> other paragraph. Just, you know, okay, you don't need to show up for vocabulary. It's all right. We get it. So I, I that was just really bugging me so I had to mention it because it's not often you know when you're reading a book and it's a well-written book the words should not jar you out of your reading and if yeah. it's one unusual word but it's the right word it's le mot juste you know then you're like oh that's very cool but to use it more than once in a book I think is just going a little too far and there are some strength <laughs> it's true the some of the book's strengths um Aside from just being able to describe things so well, with the exception of that word. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> aside from also just letting you know who the hell all these characters are. And I don't care what kind of DC nerd you are. You cannot know the thousand mm-hmm. characters that are in here. Because some are obscurely referenced. Like in that big rave scene underneath Gotham, when they show up, that just the crowd of people right. is people he picked out of one issue of 1946 action or something or other. Um so being able to get familiar with some of these other characters was really enjoyable for me. And also the death scene at the end when the bomb drops mm-hmm. was, if anything, I think that's one of the parts that I thought was even stronger than the art. The battle, I mean, it's hard to show the battle with any kind of, I mean, it's tough in a book showing a battle. But that part where people were dying and they, he managed to spend a few sentences at least, and sometimes a whole paragraph on the different characters. Um, Oliver Queen, or Olivia Queen? Yeah, that was really affecting. I thought that Very the, sad. the whole thing, it was great. And in the art, you see, so to, to get back to the plot for a second, what happens is that there are these three nuclear bombs that are set off, and two of them are disarmed, but the third one is, is going to hit, and Captain Marvel at the last moment um, decides to try to, to save all of the, the superheroes and he detonates the bomb in the sky um, so that not everyone is, is destroyed and through their power some of them are saved but most of them are killed I, I think like 90% of all yeah. the, the good guys and the bad guys totally are destroyed and um, they're in the art I'm looking at the page right here there's a, a page that has a lot of these different um, sort of diagonal panels that show people's faces pretty much at the moment when they realize that this is going to happen Mm-hmm. And th- it's great. And then the text that's in the book that matches it is is also just really chilling. I thought it was wonderfully done. And then a couple pages later on, there's a, an amazing page that um, Alex Ross is showing the aftermath of it. And it's all these skeletons that are just sort of strewn around. And you can sort of look at the skeletons and figure out 
who it is that's dead. Ted Cord, the Blue Beetle, you see his particular armor and right. yeah, and system, which didn't he die in Infinite Crisis? Anyway. Yeah, and I think you can you can tell Hawkman in here as well because you can sort of see his his bird head. Yeah, there he is, right there on on the next page, and and then there's like some giant skeletons as well from some of the other superheroes, and in the middle of it is Superman, who's just like torn with anguish and he's screaming, and um, the whole thing is done in, in shades of gray except for the red on on his uniform. So it's an extremely effective panel. Um, oh, I just got sucked into looking. At this I know it is. <laughs> you start looking at it, you're like, ah. Oh. And then as it happens, the specter says judgment. And you know what? One of the things I was curious about was, is there ever judgment passed or Norman refuses I, you know, to pass judgment? I was thinking about that as I was getting ready to do this. And, and I was going to ask you the same question to see if, if you had, if you thought that there was any sort of actual judgment that got passed here. That was the whole point of Norman McKay's um, odyssey with the specter was that he needed to, to see everything so that he could make the decision about who would live and who would die and who would be punished. And it kind of doesn't happen. Because the specter does say judgment has been passed on the page after the next one where there's points. He says judgment. You see, you see Superman, unless he's saying, here's the guilty party. Hmm. I hadn't thought and about then, that. but it's not anything that Norman had said. And even in the audio drama, he didn't, particularly say he just said that he wouldn't possibly you know heap another evil upon yeah. what had happened by judging him so if you take it literally you know the judgment could be that everybody got some you know the good guys and the bad guys That's both true. died um and humanity was saved most of it although humanity suffered too in the in the original disaster in kansas you know millions of people died right so Everybody got a little taste of Armageddon, um, but nobody got wiped out completely. So, so there's still some hope for the humans and the metahumans, the good guys and the bad guys as well. I guess I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. Yeah, and the actual decision was made by Billy Batson or by Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. He was at the time in letting and stop trying to stop the bomb, and the decision was to try and protect human all life, yeah. whether it was human or metahuman. But then, whether that means you know the actual horrible event itself. It's, I think that they leave it intentionally unclear so that you can try and see what it means to you. But it doesn't really matter whether it's whose fault it is, mm-hmm. is kind of the point. Yeah. And then just following that is um, the place where Norman McKay actually makes a difference in that he talks Superman out of killing lots of actual human beings because Superman's so pissed off that this whole thing happened and he feels bad about it. He's about to basically... Um, crush the UN building and everybody's who's inside and Norman stops him and says, you know, you need to stop being the superhero and start being the man in Superman. And that's what kind of brings him back to reality. I did like the the fact that the, the use of the name so simple that he decides to be called Cal, mm-hmm. that he considers Clark Kent to have died that day. And one of the reasons, of course, he left was because the Joker had killed 92 men and one woman right. at the Daily Planet with this poison gas. And that Clark Kent, as a person, had been died, had died that day, or as far as the rest of the world knew. No one knew that this was his secret identity. He just let Clark Kent be dead. I actually said in the book that he had found a corpse, and it actually, you know, made it disfigured to look like him or something, so that he could then be done with that life. 
And the whole coming back to being Clark at the end, where that's what they call him, and he has the glasses. I just thought that was a beautiful little touch. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really nice. And there, there's a big deal at the end that's made of the superheroes kind of revealing their secret identities. Batman takes off his cowl and reveals that he's Bruce awesome. Wayne. Yeah, it's 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 really big, and it seems like it's a big step for all of the superheroes, the superhumans, to take a step back towards humanity and stop isolating themselves and. Um, recognizing the humanity that they've all come from. And for Superman, of course, that's the biggest step since he's not human at all. It comes from another planet. And the tying of uh, Marvel's uh, cape on the top of the flagpole and supposedly it being Magog who had saved the the cape Mm -hmm. at some risk to his own life, I thought that was kind of interesting. It seemed like almost tacked on a little bit at the end. Like I was like, oh, well, of course he went and grabbed the cape. It just seems sort of odd to me that he would then do that. Like I had been so prepared to just hate him even though for for destroying all of Kansas. It was was sort of like the villain, but it's not supposed to be that he's purely the villain. He's, he's not. just some he, misguided guy. Yeah, he's, it's kind of interesting. Um, in the book, you get a lot more of, of his thoughts and feelings, and uh, th- there's the scene where Superman confronts him for the first time after the original Kansas disaster, and you get this sense from um, Magog. You know, I always said it Magog, and in the audio thing, they say Magog, and yeah. I tried to look it up on the internet, and I couldn't figure out which was the right one. <laughs> well, I'm going to say it the way I say it, and you say it, um, that he... He never meant to be evil. He just wanted to be powerful, really powerful, and really make a difference. And he felt like Superman, as he says, was not, you know, the man of tomorrow. He was the man of the 20th century, and it was time to step things up a little bit. And because of of him taking that attitude, a lot of bad things happened that he never meant to have happened. And he's actually pretty upset and sorry about this whole thing, and it drives him nuts. Um and he's he actually volunteers to go into the gulag, and he puts himself right. into... He shows up very, very docilely and says, I need a place to stay. He says something like, this <laughs> is the village of the damned, and I heard there was room for me here. So it's cool. Um, one interesting thing I noticed about Magog in the audio version, his voice is clearly done by um, a black guy, an African-American guy. I did notice that. Yeah, and I, I thought it was you know, interesting. It's not supposed to make a difference, but... I thought, actually, the guy who did his voice did a really good job of Mm -hmm. being um, this weird, conflicted character who's a little bit crazy, but, you know, at his heart is not really evil. And um, I I like that. And, of course, on this list I have of the cast doesn't say who actually did that voice, but um, just an interesting character choice that they gave him a fairly distinctive voice that you could actually tell, you know, that this wasn't your average white guy who was doing it. One of the things that I hadn't realized and really should have, especially with some of the close-ups on Magog, is how closely he was meant specifically to resemble Cable from Mm -hmm. the sort of mid-90s debacle that was (laughs) image-influenced Marvel. You know, the -the over-the-top, super-violent guns everywhere, including out the butt type of superheroes that were out for, you know, to Mm -hmm. cut a swath or destruction, in this case, across Kansas. But looking at it now with the eye and with the scar and everything, yeah, clearly supposed to be Cable. Yeah. Um, he also reminded me the first time I saw him in costume a little bit of um, the way Loki was drawn from the Thor comics kind of in Silver uh, Age. Because he had those horns. horns as well, right? And, you know, he was very much the wild card, like the god of mischief. He wasn't an evil character. He was just nuts and did whatever he felt like doing, constantly making trouble. So I, I think that, that might have been there very subtly. Um, let's see. I have a whole bunch of notes that I was making. Let's talk a little bit more about the audio version because I wanted to play a couple more clips from it. Um, 
one thing that, that really made me laugh about this is, of course, it's an audio version, and a lot of the stuff that you would normally expect to find in text or portrayed as visual, they have to do through actual words to have the characters say what they're doing. So there's one portion of it where I, it just, I thought it was hysterically funny. Um, when uh, they're, um, Green Lantern and, and Power Woman are talking about how they're going to save these people. And they have to be very explicit about the way that their powers are going to save these people. And it, it's funny hearing it, but it also reminded me that in old DC comics, people actually used to do that, right? Superman would be using his heat vision to melt a door, and the word balloon would say, and now I'm using my heat vision to melt this door so that I can get inside this place. Oh, Marvel was so guilty of that, too. Yeah, so it was always like, you know, you'd see the image, and then you'd, hear, you'd have the character saying what it was doing. So I'm just going to play this little clip so people can hear what we're talking about. America Mando. Is that... Is that Superman? They forget to lock the doors to the old folks' home. Lower your weapons. No, thanks. I got firepower I bet even you can't match. And me and my Minutemen got you outnumbered. That's where you're wrong. With Superman in the lead, seven figures drop out of the sky like angels. No, not angels. Gods themselves. Over the thunder of panic, I hear names that have not been spoken in years. Hawkman, The Ray, Power Woman, Green Lantern, The Flash, Robin, Wonder Woman. Superman had returned. In doing so, drawing from seclusion the titans of yesteryear, their emerald flashes and scarlet strobes lighting the darkness of the day. Green Lantern, Power Woman, Flash, take care of the bystanders. We're on it. I'll just use my lantern power to create a giant shovel and scoop these citizens out of harm's way. I may not have GL's power, but super strength and the power of flight should help me give a few newcomers a lift. Up you go! Somebody help me! Don't mention it. You okay, Flash? Fine. I've already pulled 22 passengers from the cat by What did he say? He's fine. Yeah, well, you won't be fine, Suits. I got a disruptor here, though. You were saying... My armor, my disruptor, you tore it to pieces. Okay, so... <laughs> I just love that. I just love That's Green Lantern great. sounding so lanterny. I'm going to use my power to make a giant shovel to scoop these people up. So Batman, the 1960s series. <laughs> it is so funny. And so I, I love that. I also love the fact that um, the this bad guy who's called the Americommando has like this totally weird southern fried accent. And then, of course, like he's such a wimp, he bursts into tears at the end when Superman like <laughs> bends his armor or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, he just he sounds like such a cracker. It's like, why did they do that? The Americommando. Americommando, and then Flash sounding like sped up. Right, it, right. It, it kind of bothered me a little bit. I mean, and he's not even supposed. To, well, you have to deliver the dialogue somehow, but he's not. He's supposed to speak so quickly that no one can hear him right, or something. Right. But um, sounded a little bit like Alvin and the Chance to me. <laughs> It was a little disruptive to my enjoyment of the scene. Um, so, so there's a little taste of it, um, people who haven't heard this before. And that's pretty much what the whole thing sounds like. So you have Norman McKay, who, who's giving sort of the roster at the beginning of all the, the superheroes. Of course, he has to name them all and reference the fact that he hasn't seen them in a long time. And, you know, you hear Superman talking, who has a very Superman-y voice. Um, I, I thought, you know, um, there are a lot of scenes where Superman and Batman are talking. And in the beginning of the play, I was having a hard time distinguishing them. And then I think the guy who was doing Batman just got better at it. 
towards the end <laughs> because by the last couple of scenes his voice was much more distinctive like I was like oh I could tell that's Batman talking he sounds definitely like an old rich bastard he does it bugged me a little bit it bugged me a little bit because I'm so used to the animated series on TV and just even more you know recently the Christian Bale sort of you know fear me type of, oh boy that's way too high for him but it was a little bit sort of well, I don't know. Maybe Bruce Wayne would have sort of a snooty voice, yeah, yeah. but it just—he wouldn't have to go into the Batman voice. He could just be, you know, old rich bastard elite <laughs> person. And boy, you get a lot of history about the about the Wayne family in Gotham in that book. No There's kidding. Like four pages about how the Waynes were there and what the servants did yeah. and like from the 1700s. It was in. De- I skipped through a little bit of it. Yeah, yeah. but that, it just went into amazing detail. I wanted to mention something that you had told me a while ago when I was first telling you I was reading Kingdom Come. <laughs> is that um, as we know, Alex Ross uses real people as models and in um, Marvels he had actually thrown in quite a few celebrities like TV stars and movie stars as models and there are some in here and it was really bugging me that um, Batman looked like an actor that I couldn't remember who it was and you finally told me who it was and I was like oh, of course it was that guy I should have known that it, Gregory it's Peck. Gregory Peck yeah he looks exactly <laughs> like Gregory Peck so that's the way Batman looks in this book um, I, I was trying to play some of the other ones. There was nobody in particular, although Lex Luthor looks like, uh, gosh, he looks like maybe um, Odd Job a little bit from the Bond movies. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, he's kind of big and round like that. Yeah, he's kind of fat. He has a, a pretty thick neck. I, I have a clip of Lex Luthor that I wanted to play also, and I'll tell you why. Um, this clip is also really funny because it's a scene where. Uh, Batman is supposed to be making an alliance with Lex Luthor. Lex is really bad. Batman's just pretending. Um, and he's bringing people like Green Arrow in and, and Black Canary um, to, to learn what Lex is really up to. So Batman has a bunch of people um, mobilized on his side, other superheroes that he's calling um, the Mankind Liberation Front. And so they're coming into the room for the first time, and, and now Lex is saying, and I don't even know who half these people are, so now we have to go through another roll call. So <laughs> it, it's kind of interesting to hear this. And there's something about Lex's voice that I want to point out and see if you agree with me. So let's listen to that clip. Ladies and gentlemen, once Superman and his toadies are out of the way, the Mankind Liberation Front can seize power. And with Batman's little bat knights keeping the peace, we can return the reins of civilization to the humans. Sounds like a plan. But again, so does this. Can't we just drop a K-bomb on Big Blue's spit curl? Sadly, Mr. Queen, kryptonite no longer packs the punch it did in the good old days. As I learned the hard way. Uh, chalk it up to solar radiation Superman cells have been guzzling all these years. He's at the height of his invulnerability. Now, once the war begins, Batman, can your players advance to the front lines if necessary? We'll be in place, Luther. Obviously, we haven't the raw might to match Superman's army, but we have the fire of youth on our side. Indeed. But I don't recognize many of the faces in the group you've brought with you. Can you introduce them? I'm unfamiliar with their credentials. Certainly. This young lady is Nightstar, the daughter of Red Robin and Starfire. And beside her is Jade, the daughter of Green Lantern, along with her brother, the shadowy Obsidian. The woman with the bow is Red Hood, the daughter of the archer known as Speedy. The half-panther, half-man there is called Wildcat. And this young woman is Park West, the daughter of the Flash. The man in the top hat is Zatara, the magician. 
And over there in the black armor carrying the crossbow is Olivia Queen, the third black canary. My daughter, I might add. Thank you, Oliver. And behind him is... Yes, 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 I see. Point taken. Okay, so that's the roll call. And I just, I love the way Luther actually says it at the end. Okay, shut up now. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard enough. So the thing about Lex Luther, to me, he sounds like a Dalek from Doctor Who. I expect him to start going a little lower, lower, but I keep expecting him to start going exterminate at any moment. Exterminate, yeah. (laughs) He's got a little Captain Avatar in him, too, from Star Blazers. (laughs) Only a little higher. Yeah, just just a little bit higher. It's it's very funny. Um, and so you get to hear the patrician Batman voice there and, and the little roll call. It's, it starts to sound like a dog show after a while, though. It's like, well, this one's the, the daughter of these two people and, you know, sired by blah, 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 and can trace their pedigree. Their pedigree yeah. show their butt exactly. their feet, yeah. <laughs> what was your opinion about the voices in general and, and the lead characters? Um, I thought most of them were pretty good, although it was really hard to tell the women apart. I thought Power Woman mm-hmm. and Wonder Woman sound a lot the same. Power Woman sounded a little more butch, but it, it was it was kind of hard to tell them apart. And uh, the the bit parts were clearly, like I said, friends of the producer or something, because some of them were just so like sort of amateurishly over the top. Kind of fun to listen to for you know three lines or so, but you would never want to hear more of that. And some of the special effects or the special, I guess, the foley effects, the audio mm-hmm. stuff. That seemed to vary in quality, to be kind <laughs> a little bit. There were certain loops. I think there was a, a, a tax scene or one of the rumbles that the superheroes and metahumans were having. And the background was like a loop. And there was someone <laughs> screaming, and it really bugged me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's going to scream again every 2.5 seconds. Um, and I know I heard a TIE fighter sound in one of these. <laughs> completely taken from, which could be like an homage. That, that was kind of cool. Yeah. But the, one of the things that I love the most about the audio or one of the best things for me, and I read in on the article he'd sent me about Alex Ross's opinion of it, was the Shazam and mm-hmm. the echo. And when he says Shazam at the end, it really, got, I got the shivers on my yeah. arms and legs when he said it. It was very strong. Yep, that, that part was great. Yeah, there there were some good things. Um, I, I thought the, the Superman speeches were sort of... Um, in character with the way Superman is being portrayed in this book that he's been away from public life for 10 years. He's kind of stilted when he's talking Mm -hmm. in front of people. So his speeches sound pretty dry and not in that um, sort of almost half joking way that Superman, we we mostly think of him when he's appearing in front of the crowd, you know, the famous Superman wink where he's always full of good humor. He doesn't have a lot of good humor in this book. no, he's, he's Batman smiles more than he does. Yeah, actually. yeah, it, and it's creepy. It's very creepy. Um, so Superman's kind of down. He's kind of depressed about things, uh, and and I think you know they did a pretty good job of that coming through. The, the part that at the end that was a little bit lame is when we when Superman is left in the midst of all this this nuclear destruction, and he's he's so full of anguish that he's screaming and pounding his fists into the ground. In the audio version, I just didn't think it was done very effectively. Like mm-hmm. visually, seeing that one little speck of red in, in the midst of this desert of bones and and decay was much more effective than having some guy, you know, in the studio kind of half-heartedly screaming, "No!" Yeah, you don't get how angry he really yeah. is. That he's beyond reason. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you know, it, this was not uh, a top-flight production, and I thought, given what they had, they, they did a pretty good job of it. Um, there's one part, there's one more thing that I wanted to play because it just cracked me up. Um, the guy who plays Robin and he's actually called, well, he's called Red Robin and sometimes he's called Robin and sometimes he's called Nightwing and 
like it's it's Grayson, right? It's Dick Grayson the whole time. But the actor who was doing that part um, was clearly channeling Burt Ward. I thought. <laughs> and, as soon as you said it, I, I know exactly. Well, if you, play, if you play the clip, you can hear Yeah, it. so there's this one little clip where he really gets into it, into full Burt Ward mode. And I, I was like, when I looked at the credits, I was half expecting to see Burt Ward's name on there. Like, <laughs> oh my God, they got him to do this. But it's not him. It's just a guy doing him. So let me play this. This is another exposition heavy thing. And there's a, there's a, a funny sort of um, additional voice also of one of the, the bad guys. Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman. Here, Robin. There you are. With all the energy beams kicking up smoke and dust, you can cut the air with a batarang. How goes the battle on your end? Not well. We have the raw strength to match the inmates, but we're outnumbered. Worst of all, the walls of the Gulag have crumbled. We're trying to contain the renegades, but there's no place to contain them. We've got to keep trying. We've got to... Look out! (laughs) It's Manator! Don't worry, Robin. Manator is mine. Thanks, Power Woman, because I see that someone else has taken an interest in me. Robin! Hello again, Tokyo Rose. Didn't you learn your lesson the last time we met? The cut rose blooms brighter than before, boy wonder. This time I will not underestimate your... Sorry, Rose, but if there's one thing I learned from my mentor, it's that you never give them a second chance. So, see, didn't didn't Power Woman sound really butch there? She definitely was flexing her biceps at that time. <laughs> and she punches the Manator, like, in the gut or something, I guess. Bam! Sounded like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> he, he sounded like that, and then Robin gets to, you know, like, kick Tokyo Rose in the head or something. She has that very B-movie, you know, Mata Hari accent going on. Oh, hello, Robin, boy wonder. <laughs> now I exact justice on you. The, the Robin, the, the Red Robin, uh, he, it seems in the exposition, like the direct exposition in the comic book, that you know that's the last time you see him. But if you read through this, the subsequent panels, one of Ro- the things that Ross can do so amazingly well is levels of narrative going on. So you have the actual thing that's taking place. You have Bruce Wayne walking through the ward of Wayne Manor, and then you have him stopping by this bed and that bed. Mm-hmm. And you see that, and you actually can see in the background of the panel, the battle before that happens, that Nightwing, well, Red Robin's daughter flies him to safety because he's Mm -hmm. injured. So they leave the battle. And then you see towards the end where Bruce Wayne is stopping, putting his hand on Red Robin's shoulder and with his daughter there. And so there's that little warm moment. There's all that kind of levels of narrative that, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm reading the book for the third time, finally picking up these little subtle things. Yep. Yep. It's great. It's, It's really good. Um, so to conclude the, the end of the book, um, Captain Marvel blows up the bomb. Most of the metahumans are destroyed, not all of them. And um, they finally go to the UN and Superman is back in his right mind. And um, they all declare that they will work with humanity and not act like gods. And they actually appoint um, the Green Lantern as the uh, emissary, the representative of the metahuman nation, sort of, which I guess is like, you know, the Iroquois nation or something to uh, to the UN. So they'll be part of it and they'll work with humanity. And that's where that word Arrowgate gets used. Um, and then, um, you know, we, we have some scenes of everybody trying to work together to make things better. So um, Wayne Manor gets turned into this hospital where we see a lot of this stuff happening. And um, Diana goes back to um, the island and that's where they use this word, um, 
re-education, which I think is kind of a bad choice because it has so many weird overtones. Um, but they try to make the bad guys be good guys. However, they're going to manage to do that. And uh, everybody, it, it isn't everybody living happily ever after, but it does have a, a hopeful ending and not an Armageddon-ish ending where everybody dies. Including even the Spectre participating in Norman McKay's right, church right. and like little tiny little touches like that that, that are throughout the yeah. comic and the book um, explains further. So then one year later in the, the trade, now I, I think I read that this was not actually included in the original run of comic books. Is that right? Did you read that? No, I didn't. I Maybe I, I misread it, but I, I kind of thought that the one year later epilogue wasn't originally included. Um, so this takes place a year later. And it kind of shows what's happened to our main group of heroes here. And interestingly, um, in the, the novel, it takes place once again through the eyes of Norman McKay. But in the, book, in the graphic novel, it's just presented sort of straight on as, as a story. Um, so we're back at Planet Krypton with the waiters who are dressed up in superhero cons- costumes. And it's a, a meeting between um, Clark and Diana and, and Bruce Wayne, where they sort of catch up on old news and talk about a few other things. And we get to have something of a resolution to what happened here. Um, so for one thing, so I'm looking at the first panel of this one year later section. Why does Superman have long black hair? <laughs> Didn't he, at one point in his history, have long hair? Did he? And it was a, a much a much mocked particular hairstyle. Oh, okay. And didn't last very long, I think. So I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit of a, a, little bit of a nod okay, towards that. maybe. And then um, I'm looking in the background there, and there's the Martian Manhunter. Isn't that Stan Lee standing next to him with the sunglasses Oh, I would on? completely not be surprised. Okay. I think that he's included every single person that he knows yeah. in these books. Okay. It just looked like him. And there's an, a lot of other little jokey things. Since this, since Planet Krypton is like Planet Hollywood, there's crap all over the walls. That's all superhero costumes and dolls and all these things that you can buy, all the different DC logos just on this place, on this panel alone. And, you know, costumes here and um, of course, like you were saying, everybody who's sitting at the tables are all probably, you know, friends of his, other comic book artists, et cetera, et cetera. There's definitely lots of different memorabilia in there. The cover of Wiz Comics number one is the first appearance of Captain Marvel. And, um, yeah, actually, I just checked the annotations and it said that long-haired Superman waiter is a clear reference to the long-haired version of Superman. Okay. Um, which is uh, with what Victor Wong sees as the the features of the TV Superman, Dean Cain. So it was kind of a double mock. Okay. Well, see, I totally missed that era of Superman. So I had no idea what that was about. (laughs) I'm looking at it like, okay, he must've done it for a reason, I guess. Um, I just thought maybe he looked really ridiculous so that, yeah, I can actually see a little bit of Dean Cain in the eyes there. Actually a lot, you know, another, let me look a second. Oh yeah. To take the hair away. Definitely. Definitely looks like Dean Cain. Okay. Thank you for pointing that out. So now we know who that is. Um, there was one really funny thing in here. There were there was one or two like things that were actually funny, um, like jokes that were funny. And one of them is, um, gosh, it's in the book. So now I have to find the place in the book. But when they're sitting there, uh, let's see. Oh. And Batman appears. Well, when Batman appears, it's pretty funny because he just kind of appears out of nowhere. There you are. You snuck up on me. Yeah. Me? How do you do that? Superman. That's just awesome. Um, but I also like, so this is not in the graphic novel, but in the book. Um, so Clark and Diana are not in their superhero guys and they just walk in and Clark says, so you don't think anybody will notice us? And, uh, 
hardly likely in the first place. You wrote the book on secret identities, and then Bruce says, amid all this tawdry, tawdry bric-a-brac, if we were fighting Dreadnought and the Monster Society of Evil in full regalia, they'd all think it was some sort of floor show. <laughs> that was good. And then, um, yeah, Bruce is sort of turning into, like, a funny guy at the end here. He stopped being quite so obnoxious. But um, they're, they're catching up on... Uh, what's happening at Wayne Manor because uh, Batman has all the bad guys sort of helping him out with this and, and Lex Luthor is there and so he's saying uh, yeah he I caught him down in the cave twice last month trying to hack the computer he sends his best and Superman goes really? and Bruce says no <laughs> <laughs> and just saying Shazam sort of out the corner right, of his mouth to, to Luthor, Luthor as he's cleaning the bed pans. right and Luthor says shut up <laughs> <laughs> awesome that was great that was very funny um, and then the big surprise at the end, so here's the big spoiler at the very end of the book, is that um, Clark and Diana are there to, to tell them that Diana's pregnant. Ooh, they're going to have a super baby. And mm. Of course, Bruce knows it before they even tell him, because he is the detective. He's the super detective. Uh, and he kind of explains about it. But I have to, like, okay, you're smart, and you know lots of big words. <laughs> so I have to ask you about this use of the word and I actually had to go look it up because it was one of those words where I kind of thought I knew what it meant and then I looked it up and I was like okay that is what it means after Bruce spoils the surprise he says uh my best to you both congratulations on bringing another spit curl demigod into the world sorry if I stepped on your denouement princess yeah see I always thought denouement meant like after the climax and all the information is revealed it's like the wrap-up the falling action after the climax yeah. of a story. I know in the literary circles yeah. what it means, but the actual definition. Yeah. So I'm look- So the actual definition here at dictionary.com is the final resolution or clarification of a dramatic or narrative plot. And then the events following the climax of a drama. So I kind of think they're using that word wrong. It's not. It could be. Because. It's one of those French words. I just think it's, I blame <laughs> it on the French. The, not only how do they have extra consonants that you just don't need at the end of words <laughs> that make you spell things wrong, but they just sound pompous. Okay, so it's another one of those pompous <laughs> words. So there we go. Okay, that was my complaint about that word. Uh, so then they ask Bruce to be the godfather, and the three of them kind of walk out, which just, you know, is a little odd in terms of the menage a trois thing that seems to be going on here. That <laughs> You know, there's Wonder Woman standing in between Superman and Batman, and she's just asked Bruce to be the godfather of the child that she's carrying. So who knows what happens mm-hmm. after they walk out the door? I'm not going to speculate on that. In the comics, doesn't he have, like, a little bit of a thing for Diana? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, everybody does. I mean, she's <laughs> Wonder Woman. How could you not? This is true. Yeah. So anyway, that's our little take on the end of it there. And um, the audio thing ends pretty much in the same way. You get to have this, uh, you get to hear what happens in this little exchange. And it's very funny. Um, Bruce's steak arrives underdone. So Clark cooks it with his heat vision. And there's this little sound effect of of meat cooking, right? It goes, (laughs) (laughs) I like how the the heat vision sounded, though. It It reminded me a lot of the like the TV series and whenever there was sort of the yeah yeah like a laser beam kind of sound yeah Yeah, pretty funny oh that was great so let's see let me look over my notes and see if there's anything else that I wanted to say um one of the things with the audio drama is that I don't think that you can get it unless you've read either the book Mm -hmm. or the graphic novel it does not stand on its own at all it's just too confusing you're in too many places because of course he's being Norman's being accompanied by the specter so he can be here and there and everywhere and it just it's a little too disorienting yeah. for somebody who hasn't read either the book or the comic book and the audio drama is definitely based off of the novel mm-hmm. not the not the comic book right. as much not that there's that much difference but 
it definitely takes the tone of of the book. Yeah, I would say that um, if you weren't familiar with the DC characters or the DC universe, you would have a hard time with the novel, even because there's a lot of stuff that you just have to take um, as as part of what's going on in the universe and accept that all these characters have these powers and that they all knew each other at one time and that there was this thing called the Justice League. And if you don't know any of that stuff, I think it could be extremely confusing. I mean, you don't have to be an expert. Like, you don't have to be a total DC geek. But if you didn't know anything about it at all, I don't think you could pick up the novel and just read it straight through and and understand everything. I'm sure I actually missed a lot of stuff because I sort of fit in that category. I'm a huge Marvel zombie. Mm-hmm. I went, you know, everything that started with an X in the title I was reading and didn't even venture hardly at all into the DC world except for, you know, Dark Knight Returns or anything Batman related once the movies came out with Michael Keaton um, back in the day when Michael <laughs> Keaton was Batman um, before the debacle of George Clooney. Um, in any case, <laughs> but I found I learned a lot. I'm sure that I would not get the same appreciation for the novel as somebody who is really knows these characters, the fact that Dick Grayson has a daughter, for example, mm-hmm. from Starfire Fire is a whole story unto itself that a person might go, oh, that's so cool, you know? Um, but I did learn a lot. So if you're interested in learning a lot about mm-hmm. it and you have some small understanding, this is a great place to start because I don't know where else you're going to get that deep of an overview for all these characters, yeah. except in something like this. Yeah. And, and lots of um, lots of what-ifs, too. I think if you are a real hardcore fan, this is a great place to, to kind of see what happens when these characters are thrown together and um, what could be and, and what would happen if um, these characters got together and had children and what their children might actually turn out to be. So I, I thought that part of it was really freeing and wonderful, just exploring the possibilities of what could be there. Yeah, the book and the graphic novel are wonderful complements to each other. And if there's parts that are slow, just, you know, skip them over. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the the book that I have is a, a paperback, and it has some of the reproductions of the um, covers. I think they're the covers of the original comic books, although they're only in black and white, so they don't look very good. They did have the hardcover version at my library, and I picked it up, and it had the uh, actual color, color illustrations in it, which were much, much nicer. And I do see some plates. Yeah, right. I actually have the hardcover version. I don't know if it's from my my local library also. Um, but the I know that he did do some original black and white illustrations for the mm. book too. Okay. And there has been a ton of Kingdom Come merchandise since the book came out, like <laughs> oh T-shirts and and those little cards that they had and um, the all the different Posters, right and the, the, figurines. the figurines. There's been tons and tons and tons of figurines. So. There's a whole, like, mini cottage industry around Kingdom Come all by itself. And now they have the Absolute version as well, so they're going to sell a ton more of those, I'm sure. Which I think I read that Alex had a little bit more content in, but not really that much more than the graffiti mm-hmm. edition. He, he was able to do a little bit, at least a little bit more. But, you know, for the art at 11 by 17, it's completely <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> totally. Anyway. Oh, to see it nice and fresh like that. Um, and then, as, as I read somewhere, there was sort of a follow-up to this. That was just called mm-hmm. Kingdom that um, everybody seems to hate and neither of us read it. So we're not even going to talk about it except to say that it exists. <laughs> yeah, even, I mean, it's on Wikipedia. You can look up the Kingdom. Even Mark Wade and Alex Ross are pretty much like, yeah, we just don't even want to think about that too much. Yeah. So uh, it, I think it's a nice enclosed story. It's like, you know, E.T., you don't need mm-hmm. to know what happens after a little bugger goes back to his home planet. It's it's good that the way it is. It's a nice cycle and the lessons learned and so forth. Yeah, so, I, I agree. There, there's one question, though, that, that was kind of um, like a, a big question that I wanted to see what you thought about. 
throughout the whole book, um, the characters are constantly questioning what they're doing, especially Superman, because he doesn't really know what to do. And Wonder Woman thinks she knows what to do, and she feels like taking any action is better than taking no action at all. But all along, we see that their choices don't turn out to be good choices, and that you know it all points to this very bad um, climax at the end. But as I was reading it and thinking about it, I was I was trying to imagine what could they have done differently in the situations that they were in. You know, if putting all those bad guys together in the gulag was a bad idea, how else could they have dealt with them? What was the alternative to what they did? And was the alternative that they found at the end something that they could have done at the beginning, which was work closely with human beings from the start? Would that have been enough to control the yeah. metahuman population? Or was it just really to a point where it just had to be controlled? Yeah, it, no. it seemed to me like things were completely out of control when, when all of the superheroes decided to join up again and that there was no way that they could have talked sense into them or, were, like, humanity is just kind of teetering on the verge of being overrun by metahuman destruction. I mean, both Batman and Lex Luthor were sort of doing something on their own but slower, and I think that it was... Superman and Wonder Woman that just accelerated the problem into this mm-hmm. horrible thing that needed to, to happen at the end, which, oh, by the way, the item in the book where it describes that the President of the United States had run like 30,000 different scenarios mm-hmm. and that only three of them was that the human people would survive, so that's why they chose to drop the bomb, seemed a little bit more compassionate, <laughs> weirdly, than in the novel where they seem like, okay, we're just going to nuke these guys off the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. And it really was clear in the book that, you know what, these guys are going to destroy the planet in, like, two days. Yeah. If we don't do something right now, it was much, much clearer. Yeah. But I don't know, with the course of action, whether they could have, if they'd come out of retirement and just said, well, I think it's supposed to be that they weren't supposed to have ever gone out of retirement. That's why Gotham became Metropolis and Metropolis became Gotham. You know, mm-hmm. Batman stayed and he was able to at least have some semblance of peace and order in his city, whereas Metropolis pretty much crumbled to the ground. Yeah. I don't know. I, it just seemed like there were no good choices. Um, and, and I kept feeling the way it was presented, especially in the graphic novel, was that there was some other choice that the characters were not seeing. Um, you know, they keep, Diana keeps getting more and more aggressive. And, you know, that's wrong, right? Everybody mm-hmm. is telling her that it's wrong. And I think it's proved wrong. She kind of admits at the end that it was wrong to, to do it that way. And Superman's... Um, inaction or inability to, to make decisions is also wrong that you have to do something. But if, if everybody is wrong, what was right? Or maybe that's the point. I don't know that there was no right answer that anything that they could have done would have been the wrong answer, but that seems kind of a, like a weird message. <laughs> Cause even Bruce Wayne was, you know, that was a little too militaristic right. and, he, you know, stomping on people's rights, even though you're safe, you pretty much were terrified at any yeah. moment there would be a big bat night flying out of the sky. Exactly. So they, they, they say that, you know, you've turned Gotham into, to um, a prison and yeah, sure. People can walk the streets at night, but is that what you want? And then the only place where there, it seems to be like decent is in Keystone city where the flash is, but that's only because he's basically everywhere at one time. And he's the only one who can be like that. So I don't know. It, it just felt like a big question that didn't really get resolved, not resolved, but ad- addressed properly at the end. And I, I kept feeling like I was missing something like, oh, yeah, there was this other choice that they just didn't think about hard enough or they didn't do. 
I think they just couldn't make up for that mistake of retreating from human beings and stepping back from humanity. It was only when they rejoined it that everything fell back into balance. I guess it's the whole God-human being thing that the, they talk about at the end where we forgot that we were, and we allowed you to make us gods, mm -hmm. and you forgot that we were not gods, that we were people. And, you know, let's all fix that mistake, not only the metahumans, but also the people who had worshipped them. So does that mean that since we live in a world without superheroes, that we're all doomed since we don't have superheroes to help us? <laughs> or does it mean that we all just have to all take care of our own shit because we're the ones making the mess? Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. <laughs> I like your interpretation better. Yeah. <laughs> Clean it up. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Well, this is just its such a, a wonderful graphic novel. And um, for people who are out there who haven't read the novel, go to the library because they probably have it. Mine did and yours did. And I, I know other folks have told me that they were able to get it from their libraries as well. So It's called Inner Library Alone. They got it from a library that was like 10 miles away from my house. So just had to wait a few days. Exactly. So it's it's Kingdom Come. It's by Elliot S. Magan, I guess is the way it's pronounced. And he is a comic book writer. He's written four comic books as well as this. I think he's written a couple of other books as well. Oh, yeah. Um, this was published by uh, Warner Aspect. And it has, they also have published other not novelizations, but novels that have grown out of characters. They list two in the front here, and one of them is called Batman, The Ultimate Evil, which is probably <laughs> not a book I'm going to read. <laughs> so let's see. Have we anything else to say about this? Just read it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and if you like semi-campy, somewhat, you know, enjoyable audio, the, that that's also pretty fun to listen yeah. to, too. Three hours long. It's a little long, but, you know, it's it's worth yeah. it if you're really, really into and, it. And listening to it in chunks is pretty painless. I was doing it on uh, on my <laughs> iPod when I was going back and forth to work. And, you know, it, it, it was like an hour of it at a time was pretty good. And that's, um, the, the it, right, it was on cassettes originally. So I guess e three cassettes each side that was half an hour. So there are these breaks where um, it's like where you would expect to hear the voice going, turn the cassette over. But that doesn't actually <laughs> happen. So there's just, you know, like end of a scene and the music kind of fades out and then it fades back up again and the characters start talking. So there are actual breaks where you could stop and, and come back to it the next day if you had to. It's worth it just to hear that Planet Hollywood waiter again. Definitely, definitely. Channeling Steve Kometko. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly Paul Lynn. Depends on what you are and what you remember. Really? Um, I'm going to do a little commercial right now for my sponsor, Comic Relief. Um, I'm, I'm, I've taken to calling them uh, the only comic book store that matters. Um, and they're located at 2026 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley, California. And uh, they have just the most amazing selection of books. I missed free comic book day there this past weekend because I was just too busy with other stuff. But I'm going to go in there on Friday to load up on things. And uh, if you do end up going there, please tell Rory that I sent you because I have promised him that I will do my best to plug his store on my show. If you have a local comic book store, Catherine, that you'd like to put in a plug for, please feel free to do so. <laughs> <laughs> I pretty much am a comic book store flirt. I go pretty much everywhere that if I happen to be driving for business and I look up on Google and I find one, I'll just stop there. But it's only recently that I've been going back to the comic book store and it's really been an enjoyable experience. Thank God they've evolved from where they were in the <laughs> mid-90s. Oh, it's awesome. I um, I had a, a funny thing happen because I missed Free Comic Book Day because I haven't, yeah, so I. I haven't been to the store in a while because I've just been too busy. Um, a friend of mine in New Zealand um, sent me a picture of him 
at a comic book store on free comic book day and he was holding the new issue of love and rockets which i don't have yet and um, i was just like hey how come you got the new issue of love and rockets before i did <laughs> and you're in new zealand i'm so jealous i hate you <laughs> so yeah okay. must go to store must buy that must have it now i know i'm behind on astonishing x-men too 14 is out and the whole kitty pride colossus thing is coming to <laughs> oh god i'm such a fangirl anyway <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been wonderful, as always. Um, we, oh, we will definitely have to uh, select our next topic for talking, and we'll look around and find something that's sort of a, a multimedia thing, I'm sure. Um, so thank you all for listening. Please send us um, your comments and your questions. And if you have opinions about the audio version, if you've heard it or about the novel, we would love to hear from you. So leave a comment at the blog at ireadcomics.blogspot.com, or you can send email to me, lena at troubledscience.com. So um, thanks, Catherine. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you, Lena. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.